here quickly. Acts 19, verse 1, the Bible says, And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus. And finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. We're going to, Paul here is making his way into Ephesus. He's probably, uh, in these verses, on the outskirts of town, making his way in. And we're going to look at the church that was planted in Ephesus. It was quite a church plant, and um, uh, the church really grew and uh, became one of Paul's greatest successes in, in his ministry, in his three missionary journeys. And so the title of the sermon is this, A Church That Is Growing in Christ. I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of a church that is growing in Christ. There's a lot of churches that are growing, but they're growing in carnality. They're growing in uh, what's popular in the culture. They're growing in a comfortable, casual version of Christianity. I want to be a church, be a part of a church that is growing in Christ. And that's exactly what they had in Ephesus under Pastor Paul the two years he was there. We're going to look at that tonight, and we're going to pull some things out of uh, Acts chapter 19 that I hope we can apply here at our church and help us to be more of a church that is growing in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be alert and attentive to the passage This evening, Lord, uh, help us to glean much from the Bible. And Lord, corporately, may we be a church that strives and thrives to be a church that is growing in you. May we take our eyes off each other. May we take our eyes off ourselves. May we put our eyes on you. And Lord, march forward and run the race that you've called us to. And Lord, may you look down and see a church that is deeply in love with you because we know that you are deeply in love with us. Be with us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, in preparation for this message, I did a lot of research on church attendance in the United States. And I'll spare you all of the numbers and all of the bar graphs or line graphs, but I'll just say this, that church attendance in the United States continues to trend in the wrong direction. The wrong direction. Why is church attendance trending in the wrong direction? Well, I could spend hours and hours and hours talking to you about that, but I'll just say by way of introduction that there are many, many, many factors. One of the factors, and maybe the the, the most important factor, is that many churches in the United States of America are not growing in Christ corporately. There's not a growing in Christ corporately. We have taken our eyes, I'm, I'm speaking I'm speaking uh, broadly here. We have taken our eyes off of Christ, and we're growing uh, in some ways, but because we're growing the wrong way, ultimately church is becoming less popular, and Christianity is becoming less of the norm in our country. So where do we lay the blame for this trend? Is it the fault of pastors? Is it the fault of pastors that churches are not growing in Christ, that church attendance is on the decline. And I would say in many cases, it is the fault of pastors. Pastors are to set the tenor and the tone of the church, and many churches lack a pastor who knows how to lead the church forward to grow in Christ. Is it 
always the pastor's fault that a church does not grow? No, it is not always the pastor's fault. Is it the church member's fault? Is it though the part of the attendees that make up the church as to why attendance is on the decline and churches are not growing in Christ? Again, I would say in many cases, yes. It is the fault of church members that churches are not growing in Christ. Many pastors grow frustrated. And I have many pastor friends in this boat. They grow frustrated because no matter how hard they work to lead the church uh, to do right and be right and love Christ and grow in Christ and push forward and have a fervency and a passion for the Lord, no matter how hard they push, no matter how hard they try to lead their church in the right direction, the people that that pastor is called to lead just will not follow. Oftentimes they're too distracted with living like the world to take Christian growth seriously. As I look across the American landscape, I see more and more churches shrinking, not growing. Shrinking, not growing. Even here at White Oak Baptist Church over the last year and a half, we've had a whole lot of new people come into our church. A whole, if on a Sunday morning I were to ask how many of you started coming within the last year and a half, probably 25 to 30% of the crowd would raise their hand. But even with all of the influx of new people, our attendance numbers have dropped off by about 25 or 30 on average on a Sunday morning. And uh, we can say that it's all on COVID. I, I think that, uh, now we, we still have people, I want to make sure I get this disclaimer out there loud and clear. We still have people who are not coming back because of COVID who still love God and still love our church. And when the time's right, they will, will be back. I am not talking about that crowd. But we do have people who COVID did not, uh, they're not, not coming back because of COVID. The reason why they're not coming back is because COVID revealed a real problem deep down in their heart. COVID brought about the reality of where they truly were in their walk with the Lord. And maybe they've landed on their feet in another church, but in many cases, they're just not attending anywhere at all. We look across the American landscape and we see that churches are shrinking and not growing. One stat I saw talked about the Southern Baptist Church movement, how it has dropped off in a percentage well into the high teens over uh, since 2018. Their attendance has dropped off. When people grow spiritually at church, listen to this now, here's the thrust of the message when people grow spiritually at church, I mean corporately, the church is growing spiritually, then what happens is numerical growth comes right behind it. A lot of people want to push numerical growth without pushing spiritual growth. And what happens is we're getting the cart before the horse. We're, we're, we're getting out ahead of ourselves. No, no, no. Uh, if the church body will grow spiritually, then numerical growth will take care of itself. When people are diminishing um, uh, spiritually at church, then you can, you can just count on it. The church is going to diminish numerically. Where the flock are fed, the sheep gather. Where the flock is not fed and the flock is not growing, then the sheep do not come. Those who care about growth do not attend. Uh, how can you help White Oak Baptist Church 
to grow its attendance numbers. I, I don't know about you. I don't thrive on numbers. I don't get a, I don't look to get a numerical headcount each and every Sunday. I've known pastors, man, uh, they want to know the number the second they step out of the pulpit and they hang their hat on how many people they had in church on Sunday morning. It seems like they love numbers more than they love the people that make up the numbers. That's not healthy, but listen, that one barometer of how healthy we are as a church is, are we growing? Please understand that Jesus Christ said, upon this rock, I will build my church. I will build my church. Not I might or I may or I'll think about growing my church. He said, I will grow my church. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The hell, the gate around hell is meant to keep people in. It's meant to protect uh, the hell from the church pulling people out. And listen, God's default is that He wants the church to grow and if a church is not growing I think we have to look inward at the church and not look at God and blame Him the default is growth the default is growth. Um, how many of you here have ever been out in the garden working with a water hose and you got the water on but there's no water coming out of the hose do you just think well maybe the water company didn't want to send me any water today no 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 you go and look for the kinks that are stopping the water and you get that hose untwisted and guess what the water flows. And what do we want here at White Oak Baptist Church? We want to unkink the hose of sin. Get the sin kinks out of the hose so that growth can come. But is it about numerical growth first? No. It's about the spiritual growth of the church corporately. It's about us collectively as a group growing closer and closer and closer to Christ. Now, here's the reality. If the church is going to grow corporately, then it needs the, the, those who make up the corporate church to grow individually how much more like christ are you today than you were 12 months ago 24 months ago 36 months ago can you look back over your shoulder in the last 12 months and say by the grace of god i have grown in this area here's a tangible way that i have grown all right? You've heard this line of logic before, but indulge me for a moment. If, if, the, if everyone at White Oak Baptist Church grew as much in the Lord over the last 12 months as you have grown, would have the church grown or shrunk? Boy, we want everyone else to do the growing for us. I don't know about you, I don't want to be the dead weight holding back White Oak Baptist Church. I don't want to be the one that's not growing and holding the church back from the growth that God wants to send. Boy, if you want to help White Oak Baptist Church grow, then you need to grow individually and we need to grow in the Lord corporately. Paul arrived at Ephesus in the region of Asia, modern day Europe. He found a mission field fertile and ready for a church to be planted. Paul not only worked to lead people to Christ, Listen closely, he baptized, he discipled, and he commissioned missionaries into other regions around where he was. During his two plus years uh, there, they experienced a revival, and then on the heels of that revival, persecution. So this lays out for us, chapter 19 of Acts, we'll see tonight, lays out for us what church growth is and what it looks like. So if you want to write these things down on that back of that half sheet of paper, here are the steps of church growth, okay? Quickly here. Notice first the winning of converts. 
the winning of converts. Paul went into Ephesus, and the very, very first thing he did is he led a whole bunch of people to Christ. There were a whole bunch of new Christians because Paul was busy giving the gospel. And you cannot have a church unless you have saved people in that area. And so there was the winning of converts. If you're writing these down below, the winning of converts, write down the baptizing of converts. The baptizing of converts. It wasn't just enough for him to lead them to the Lord. As we saw in Acts 19, as we opened tonight, 12, those 12 men who got saved, on the heels of that, he baptized baptize them, the baptizing of converts. And then below that, write this down, the discipling of converts. The discipling of converts. We'll see in Acts 19 this evening that Paul took the time to teach and disciple and prepare the converts for the work of the Lord. Notice below that, the commissioning of converts. The commissioning of converts. Not only did he uh, uh, win converts, not only did he baptize converts, not only did he disciple his converts, he commissioned his converts. They went all throughout Asia. Uh, That area was called Asia. He went all throughout Asia. Uh, They did. Planting churches as they were commissioned and sent out uh, by Paul and uh, the church there. And then notice below that, um, uh, sin purged in the heart of converts. The purging of sin in the heart of converts. The purging of sin in the heart of converts. And as we go through Acts 19 tonight, you're going to see these steps in this order of church growth. And so the emphasis of Acts 19, Paul begins his third missionary journey. He had straight Ephesus. And when he gets there, he's there for two years. He spends almost his entire time in Ephesus. And he's planting a church. He's establishing a church. He's helping that church to grow in Christ. So, uh, uh, so after all of that's accomplished, they, they see these people saved and baptized and discipled and commissioned uh, out to plant other churches, and then there's a purging of sin within the church. Then the very next thing that happens is that there's a persecution of the converts, the persecution of the converts. Here's the reality. If you're going to uh, etch out a spot in a town and you're going to build a church and it's going to grow and you're going to affect the kingdom of darkness, Satan does not take well to that. He's going to push back and he's going to fight. And you know what? If Satan doesn't fight your church, then you're not doing something right. You ought to be affecting uh, uh, his kingdom and stealing souls out of uh, his uh, darkness that he wants to take them to and helping them find their way to heaven. One preacher put it this way, the goal of the Christian is to depopulate hell and populate heaven. I like that. Depopulate hell and populate heaven. And you do that enough, Satan starts to take notice and all of a sudden he's going to start sending problems toward the church to try to disrupt the growth of that church in Christ. Again, the question this evening is this, are we a church, is White Oak Baptist Church a church that is growing in Christ? Are we corporately becoming more like Christ? I believe that every Christian should desire to grow in Christ. At our church, we should have a culture of spiritual growth. How is this accomplished? This is accomplished if you and I commit to personal growth in Christ. As we grow, we help others to grow. We have to take our eyes off of the sinful culture around us. We have to place our eyes on Christ. And we have to become consumed with the things of God. And we have to become consumed with the approval of God on our life. I don't care if the culture approves of me. I don't care if a, a, a family member or a neighbor or a co-worker approves of me. All I care about is 
Do I have the approval of Christ on the way I work and on the way I live and on the way I parent and on the way I am a spouse and in every hat that I wear in life? Do I have the approval of Christ? We must become passionate about helping others to develop a relationship with God and lead them into a church that will help them to grow in Christ. So what we're going to do this evening is we're going to join the Apostle Paul. He leaves Antioch in the end of Acts chapter 18 and he makes his way in the beginning of 19 to the city of Ephesus where he's going to plant a church and then mature that church as it grows in Christ. Let's look at four thoughts this evening. Number one, notice the word clarity. Clarity. Look at Acts chapter 19 and we're going to read from verse 1 down through verse number 7. Follow along in your Bibles there, if you will. It says, And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus. And finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto then what were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance. Notice that, the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come, should come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied, and all the men were about twelve. Now a lot of Baptists get very nervous over this passage, all right? It appears that uh, uh, in this passage, if it's misinterpreted or misunderstood, the passage could seem to say that you need to be baptized to get saved. The passage could seem to say, if you were reading it in a certain direction, that you do need to speak in tongues after you get saved. And the, the, our Pentecostal friends, they love Acts 19. They love to run to this passage right here and point this out. And so we're going to uh, offer some clarity tonight on these verses and what they mean. So there are a handful of passages in the book of Acts that are misunderstood. Um, and this is one of them. Paul arrives in Ephesus and finds some men who are almost saved, but not quite there. Notice there it says, in, uh, let's see, verse number 2, I believe, is it says that they believed, they believed, and, and Paul asked, have you received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? I meet a lot of people while I'm out soul winning, and I ask them if they know they're going to heaven in some form or another, and what they tell me is, I'm a believer, or I have faith. And so I go along with their statement, okay, you have faith, but you have faith in who? You have faith in what? And listen, it's okay to have faith, and it's okay that these folks believed, but they had not quite come across the finish line with salvation. Let me show you that this evening, all right? Um, they said they had been baptized with John's baptism. Let me, let me uh, share some things with you I pulled from my study of this passage. John, John's baptism was linked to repentance, I am repentant, they, they, they must have said, therefore I submit to this baptism. It is the public expression of a personal expectation of the soon coming Christ. Again, the language there was that, the, that one should come. And they had not yet believed in the one that did come. They're still looking for the one that should come. So it was a baptism of repentance pointing forward to a coming Christ. So that's John's baptism. Now, notice that John's baptism was linked to repentance, while Christ's baptism is linked to regeneration. The, the, the Christian uh, baptism says, I have been regenerated, therefore I submit to this baptism. It is the public expression of my personal experience 
of an indwelling Christ. Moreover, John's water baptism pointed to a promised baptism of the Spirit. It predicted the day of Pentecost. Christian baptism points to a present baptism of the Spirit. It proclaims the day of Pentecost has already come. John's baptism said there's going to be a change in the dispensations. The Holy Spirit is going to come into the world. Christian baptism not only demonstrates that uh, that this has happened, it says there is a change in my disposition. The Holy Spirit has come into my heart. John's baptism was essentially Jewish in character, scope, and significant. Uh, the significance, uh, believer's baptism is essentially Christian in character, scope, and significance. A Jew baptized uh, at, at the urging of John remained a Jew. Um, a believer baptized at the urging of John remained a Jew or an American or a German or an African or an Asian or, or, or pick your, uh, uh, your culture. Uh, but it also publicly identified by his baptism with something far greater than nationality. Again, John's baptism was Jewish in nature. Uh, uh, the Christian baptism does not identify with Judaism. It identifies with Christ in the church. His baptism does not, uh, uh, his baptism does not make us a Christian, but it proclaims the one baptized to be a Christian. It does not put him in the church, but it announces to everyone around him that he is in the church. You see the difference? You see the difference between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism? John's baptism pointed to repentance of a Messiah who would one day come. Jesus' baptism was, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that He has come. These men were sincere. These men were believers in a coming Messiah, but they didn't realize that Jesus Christ had come. And boy, Paul preached to them and they came across the finish line. They believed and their belief was close but their belief was not quite there. I find a lot of people um, who uh, understand a lot of the elements of the gospel, they understand that they're sinners. They believe that Jesus was born of a virgin and that He lived a sinless life and that He died on the cross and that He rose from the again, but they've not yet quite believed in Jesus. They're believing, but their belief is a little bit misplaced. It's not quite clear on what they need to do. And Paul came to these men who were close and he brought them across the finish line, and then upon their salvation, he baptized them anew in the baptism of Jesus. Now, I just want to throw this out here real quick. Real quick, uh, I meet people all the time, and there may even be someone here like this tonight, who says, well, I got baptized before I got saved, so I've been baptized, and it's all good. It's all good. And I would say to you, here in Acts 19, we find an example of people who were baptized before they got saved, and then they got saved, and Paul said... We need to get this taken care of. We need to get this taken care of. How many of you here were baptized in some form prior to getting saved, and then you got baptized again after you got saved? How many know what I'm talking about? A whole bunch of you have your hands up there. And you know what? Baptism is the wedding ring of, of, of salvation, if you will. Uh, if I would have looked at Angela on my wedding day, and I would have said, you know what? Ten years ago in a, in a ring shop, I put a ring on the fourth finger of my left hand. I've wore a wedding ring before, and so I don't need to do that again. She'd have looked at me funny and said, if you love me, put the ring on. Right? And she'd have been right to say that. And listen, uh, baptism, or rather my wedding ring, is an outward expression of my inward affection. Baptism is an outward expression of my inward 
uh, decision to trust Christ. Baptism does not save you. It does not wash the sin away. It is not necessary to go to heaven. But my friend, baptism signifies to the world, I believed in Christ to save me. And if you did that before you believed, then the baptism, that baptism is null and void. You must be baptized upon your believing. And then now we come next to the clarity, offering the clarity in this passage. You, you scratch your heads and say, Pastor, why did these men speak in tongues? What is that all about? Why is there this testimony that upon their baptism they started to speak in another uh, a tongue, another language? What, what, why, did, why was this included? And I have to say that it does seem odd to me that uh, Luke, the, uh, the author of the book of Acts, that Luke included this. At least at first it seems odd to me. He could have left this out and not included it and the text would have flowed just fine. But all the same... He put this in here. And uh, there are all kinds of theories as to why that is and why these men spoke in tongues. One theory is that um, uh, various groups of people, uh, when, when, when the, that re- gospel is brought to that region for the first time, one uh, a signifier that, uh, the, that the salvation of those people was real was that they spoke in tongues as sort of a, 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 a beginning point within that region of the gospel being legitimate. Uh, being legitimatized, I just made up a word, but I can't think of the real word. So, um, anyway, amen, amen. I, I, am I a pre- I'm a preacher. I can make up words as I go. Is that fair? All right. Thank you for your approval. All of the grammar heads are like, you, you've lost your mind. But let me just say that I believe there's another reason why this is included in this passage. One that I came upon in my study, I believe to be a, a good uh, explanation. I, I, I believe part of what Luke was trying to accomplish in his writing of the book of Acts he was, trying to, um, he was trying to offer credibility to Paul's status as, a, as an apostle. And uh, listen, uh, Paul did not walk on planet earth with Jesus like Peter did and the other apostles did. And uh, Paul was looked down upon by much of his contemporaries as someone who is a, if you will, wannabe apostle. Wannabe apostle. And I think that part of the reason why Luke wrote the book of Acts under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was to prove that Paul indeed was an apostle. And you say, well, Pastor, what proof can you offer of that? Well, it's interesting to me that Acts, the book of Acts records Peter's first sermon and then Paul's first sermon. It records Peter's first Gentile convert in Cornelius. It also records Paul's first Gentile convert in Sergius Paulus. Remember on that first missionary journey on the island of Cyprus? Uh, Luke shows in the book of Acts that both men went to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. Luke shows that both healed a lame man. Luke shows that both Paul and Peter, Peter and Paul, were imprisoned and miraculously released. Uh, Luke shows that both men were visited by an, by an angel. Uh, Peter was led by a vision to open the door of the church to the Gentiles, again Cornelius. Paul was led by a vision to the door of the European continent to the church. The Macedonian call. Both men were worshipped by some Gentiles, and, and how uh, they both reacted is recorded by Luke in the book of Acts. Both men were beaten. Both men uh, performed miracles. Luke records the, the miraculous influence of Peter's shadow, but then records the miraculous, um, uh, uh, the miraculous handkerchief of Paul. We'll see that here in a few more minutes in the passage. Uh, 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 Luke records how that Peter raised Dorcas from the dead, and then records how Paul raised Eutychus 
Eutychus from the dead. We'll look at that when I get back from Peru uh, in a couple of Sunday nights. Uh, Luke records Peter's confrontation with the magician Simon the sorcerer, and then it records how Paul confronted the magician uh, Elymas. Earlier in Acts, Peter laid hands on the Gentiles, and they received the Holy Ghost, and they spake in tongues. Now here in uh, Acts 19, we see how Peter, or rather how Paul lays hands on these men after they're baptized, and they speak in tongues. Why is this little tidbit about these men speaking in tongues recorded in Acts 19? I would say that uh, Luke is making a case for Paul's apostleship, and I believe that maybe is why it is included in this passage. So uh, many people like the 12 men here in the beginning of Acts 19 are close to the gospel, but they are not saved. They believe uh, in something, but they lack the clarity they need to believe in Christ to become saved. And it's our, it's our duty as Christians to bring clarity to people who need the gospel. So we see number one, clarity. Number two, let's notice the word Converts, converts. Look with me at verses 8 and 9 of Acts chapter 19. 8 and 9. The Bible says, And he, Paul, went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when diverse were uh, hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tychicus. We'll come back and look at that last part of verse 9 in just a moment. But notice what Paul did. You may remember at the end of his second missionary journey after he was in Corinth, he made his way uh, with um, Ananias, I'm sorry, not Ananias Ananias and Sapphira, they're dead at this point. They were dead back in chapter 4. Let's see, Priscilla and Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla, whichever way you want it. He he arrived on the, uh, uh, there in Ephesus with Aquila and Priscilla, the tent makers, and there Aquila and Priscilla stayed in Ephesus. Paul got up and shared Christ in the synagogue, and he was really well received, and they begged him to stay, and he said, no, 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 I've got to get to Jerusalem, I have some matters I need to handle, and he left. Well, now, uh, sometime, some months later, he's come back to Ephesus, he's coming back into the synagogue, in the end of chapter 18, Apollos has already been in the synagogue proclaiming truth to these people, and so the ground is now fertile for Paul and uh, the church in the city of Ephesus, and so he gets up, and for three Three months, for three months, he speaks boldly in the synagogue, making his case for Christ. And many, many, many people believed, but not everyone believed. In fact, as was the custom, many of the Jewish rulers who ran the synagogue did not believe. And so instead of being able to turn the synagogue into a church, uh, Paul took those who believed after three months and he left and he started his own uh, his own work there, his own church there in um, uh, Ephesus. Now, notice here that Paul arrived in a city with very few converts and Paul got busy preaching the gospel and he saw a whole lot of people saved. Aren't you glad that the gospel can still save souls? Even in a city as wicked as Corinth and Ephesus, the gospel still works. It doesn't need us to be uh, articulate or fancy. Listen, the gospel is powerful. You don't need to be a great salesman. You just need to know how to articulate the truths of the gospel and let the gospel go to work and save hearts and lives. And I'm thankful for every single person that's been saved because of White Oak Baptist Church. I just had this thought come to me that's, I believe, really good. I want to share with those of you that have been here for many, many years. How many of you have been attending White Oak Baptist Church for 15 years or more? Would you raise your hand? 15 years or more. 
Uh, let me just uh, share this with you here. And I've not been here 15 years, but because I've worked at it so hard for five years, I, I feel like I can put myself in with y'all in this way, all right? I want White Oak Baptist Church to grow and succeed. I eat, sleep, drink, breathe, live church growth. I go to bed with it on my heart and mind. I wake up with it on my heart and mind. If you spend any time with me, that's obvious. And I know many of you that raise your hand, it's a big deal to you too that White Oak Baptist Church succeeds and does well. And that one day when you're not here any longer, this church still holds the, the doctrine that Pastor Brown brought in 40 years ago, the truth of the Bible. And it's still in place generations to come. And, and I just want to share this uh, with you all. I cannot wait to get to heaven. And have God show all of us how many people were saved in the Stratford area because of White Oak Baptist Church. Is it, is it, is it hundreds? No. Is it thousands? No. It's, it's got to be in the tens of thousands of people, if not more, that have been saved directly because of the witness of White Oak Baptist Church. Now, do we run 10,000 in attendance? No, obviously not. But boy, how many people are going to be in heaven? Because Pastor Brown came here in 1979, started the church in 1980, and for 41 years, you all have been faithful in preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen for every single soul that's been saved. Whether it's been inside the walls of this church or soul winners beating the, the, the sidewalk and beating the pavements and the doors and telling people about Jesus. And listen, let's never lose sight of the spiritual light and the impact that it's made for the, for, for the kingdom of heaven because we've been here. Boy, I don't know about you, but I want to, over the next 40 years, that tens of thousands of more people are saved in this area because of the witness of this church. Number one, we see clarity. Number two, converts quickly. Number three, notice the word continuance. Continuance. Look with me at uh, letter A, Paul's ministry of discipleship. Paul's ministry of discipleship. Look at verse number nine and ten. The Bible says, But when diverse were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of the way before the multitude, he, Paul, departed from them. Look here. And separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one uh, Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of... Two years, two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So after three months in the synagogue, Paul took his converts and he used a classroom in a Bible school of a man named Tyrannus. And uh, this is a possible convert of Paul. It's possible that he rented the space and uh, this man was friendly toward him but not a believer. We don't know those details, but... It was common back then for there to be schools of theology in various towns where there was a synagogue, there would be a school of theology where the Judaism could be taught. And some speculate that Tyrannus got saved under Paul's teaching and he turned that into a Bible school, if you will. And Paul used that as the hub of his church where he taught and he preached and he discipled and he discipled and he discipled and he discipled. So we've seen Paul go into a town. We've seen him lead folks to Christ. We've seen him baptize people. And now he's moving on to the next step of the Great Commission, and that's discipleship. Paul took that serious. It says there that he disputed. What does that mean? That means that there was this 
theological working out with people, helping them come around to right doctrine and understanding. Uh, I know I have had many uh, men over the last handful of years and some women as well where I've worked with couples. I've sat down with them and I've gone through our discipleship curriculum. And you know what there's been a little bit of? There's been a little bit of disputing that's gone on because people say, well, what about this? And what about that? And how about this? And how about that? Ah, I understand. Ah, I've got a good understanding. On Wednesday nights, we have a discipleship ministry meet over here in the classroom around the corner. And we have master clubs that meets upstairs. And you know what all of that is? Those are discipleship opportunities for people to ask questions, if you will, dispute as they work through a knowledge of the Word of God. Not only to have a head full of knowledge, but to have a heart full of practical Christian living. Now, I want you to notice uh, uh, that uh, these folks got busy. Look back at verse 10. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord uh, Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, this wasn't just in Ephesus. How did folks hear the word of the Lord all over Asia? I'm going to tell you how. People in this Bible school, in this church, that were being discipled, they reached a point of growth where they were ready to take the gospel to somewhere else. And men and women, couples, uh, were heading out into other regions, and they were church planting all over the place. Boy, Paul went into Ephesus, a hub town. He reached a whole lot of people. He got busy planting a church. He got busy discipling people. And then those disciples went out, and they did this. They made more disciples. Write this down somewhere in your notes. Write this down. Disciples make disciples. Disciples make disciples. Write that down. Disciples make disciples. You're going to be hearing me say that a whole lot over the next five to ten years. Disciples make disciples. If you're not making disciples, then you're not doing a very good job yourself of being a disciple. Because disciples make disciples. Disciples. Jesus said, Go in all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them, discipling them, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Disciples make disciples. Paul went into an area where there weren't very many converts. He led a whole bunch of people to Christ. He got them together. He, he, he got them baptized. He taught them the Bible. And these folks reached a point of growth where they then went out and they began to make their own disciples. They then went out and began to help others. Are you hungry to grow? Are you hungry to grow? If you're young in the faith and a true believer, then you should be hungry to grow. How many of you remember, you may be in this spot right now, but how do you remember when you first got saved and how excited you were to be saved and how hungry you were to devour in your heart the things of God? How many of you remember that? How many can remember? Maybe you're there right now. How many can remember how hungry you were to devour the Word of God? I'm not here to judge another man's salvation, another person's salvation, but people who give lip service to prayer and then never have any desire to grow Boy, I think for you, my encouragement to be that you need to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. If there's no desire to grow right after you got saved, then my friend, you need to question whether or not you ever even got saved. Uh, But you remember that moment where you were hungry to grow. And then what happens is we grow to a point where we're saturated with Bible knowledge and we've reached a point of good Christian discipline. And if we're not careful, we'll plateau. We'll plateau. How many know what I'm talking about when I say if we're not careful, 
will plateau. How many of you at some point in your Christian life have plateaued? You know what I'm talking about tonight? I'm afraid many Christians right now have plateaued. Now remember, the title of the sermon is a church that is growing in Christ, not a church that has plateaued for Christ. Boy, we grow and grow and grow and grow, and we get to a point where we're comfortable, and then we plateau. You say, well, Pastor, you know, I, there isn't a sermon you can preach where I've not already heard the concepts. Okay. All right, I get it. I've been in church for 37, almost 38 years. I get it. I understand that. You say, well, how, then how do I continue to grow? The way you continue to grow once you've hit that point is you must then turn around and teach others. If you are not investing in someone else, then you will plateau and stay plateaued. You know what did? A, you know it was a great shot in the arm for me to grow when I was voted in to be the pastor of White Oak Baptist Church, because now I've got to get in my Bible and I've got to read and study and pray and ask God for material so that three times a week I can stand behind this pulpit and I can feed the flock of God. You want to grow? You say, well, pastor, you haven't asked me to be a ministry leader or a life group uh, leader. How can I grow? You're not giving me an opportunity to grow. I'm not stopping you from going to Pastor Andrew and saying, can I, be, uh, can I help with discipleship? Listen, there's a lot of people in this church that need to go through our discipleship program. And Pastor Andrew has a dearth of people to help lead in that way. And uh, uh, Pastor, uh, uh, rather, Brother Andres could always use more help in master clubs. Invest yourself in others. And what you'll see is that you will keep on growing. You'll keep on growing. Boy, if we're not investing in others at some point we will begin to shrink. Now again, if you're new to Christianity, you don't need to, to disciple yet. You're in the middle of getting discipled. But once you reach the point where you've learned and you understand and you have it down, then you must get someone and invest in them. Why? Because say it with me, disciples make disciples. Again, let's say it together. Disciples make disciples. And we must be busy doing the work of a disciple. Number, uh, letter A, rather, Paul's ministry of discipleship. We'll hit this one quickly and move. Letter B, notice Paul's miracles of healing. Paul's miracles of healing. Look at verse 11 and 12. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs of, or aprons, and the disease departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Wow. Um, if God wasn't getting the glory out of this, Paul is probably making tents at some point to help provide money for himself, and it's hot, and he's wearing a handkerchief on his head, or he's taking the handkerchief out, he's wiping the sweat off his head, right? He's wearing an apron as he's working with threads and needles and, and whatnot. He's, he's sewing these uh, 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 tents together, and his apron's getting dirty, and they take his handkerchief that is dripping in sweat, Talking about wearing gloves and masks, amen? That would have been a good time to wear gloves and masks. They're taking his handkerchief over to someone who's sick, and they're wiping his sweat on people, and they're being healed. They're taking his apron that he wore in tent making, and they're holding that up to someone who's demon-possessed, and the demons are fleeing, not at the presence of Paul, but at the presence of the apron of Paul. The presence of the sweat-filled handkerchief of Paul. Now, um, before you get concerned that we're going to start a, a handkerchief and apron ministry at White Oak Baptist Church, 
the apostleship era is gone, all right? Uh, the apostles, they're no longer around. That gift is gone. You don't have to worry about that. But this pointed to, again, the authority of the apostleship of Paul. So we see clarity, converts, continuance. Number four, notice the word cleansing, cleansing. And again, we're going to move quickly here. Letter A, notice the church purified, the church purified. We have a really interesting story here. Uh, I shared my demon possession story today with Rika in the office there at Granite Baptist Church in Maryland. Look at verse 13. We're going to see a real demon possession story, one that's crazy. Look here. The, then certain of the vagabond Jews, that means they traveled around, they moved around from place to place. By the way, real quick, why did they move around from place to place? Oftentimes, preachers that are constantly on the move, especially of this sort, have some kind of bag of tricks and if they stick around long enough, people figure out their, 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 their act, right? The stick is up, if you will. And so these guys are constantly in the move. They're vagabonds. They're on the move. Look at here. Uh, th- then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over uh, them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priests which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know. Should I do my best demon voice when I read this? Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are ye? Who are you guys? And the man in whom the evil spirit, uh, and the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus. And fear fell on them all. I love this next part of the verse. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found as fifty thousand pieces of silver so mightily grew the word of god and prevailed what a story these guys who are phonies they walk into the home of a demon possessed man there's seven boys seven sons of uh, a man named skiva who is a, a, a chief of the priest and they attempt to exercise a demon in the name of jesus and paul and the demon looks at him and says this is a joke right i know who jesus is I tremble at the thought of Jesus. I tremble at the name of Paul. But who are you? These guys weren't even believers. They weren't even saved. They were phonies. And the demon leaped. Did the demon leave the man and jump on them? No. I think what happened was this man, because he was demon-possessed, had supernatural strength. He ripped the clothes off these seven guys and he beat them up. And these seven guys lost to one man. And these guys ran out of the house wounded and naked. And boy, word got around town about folks who are messing around with spiritism in the occult. And the Bible says there that the name of Jesus Christ was magnified. What happened? Boy, more people were saved because of this occurrence. And on top of that, people who were in the church got their hearts right with God. They had things in their home that did not please the Lord. 
There were books that dealt with spiritism and uh, the curious arts, the Bible says. And they had a revival, if you will, because these books, uh, this paraphernalia, these items were brought and they had a burning. They burnt these items in a fire. Now, I want you to stop and think about this. I, I came upon this in my studying of this passage. Do you remember how much they sold Jesus, how much Judas sold Jesus for? 30 pieces of silver. That was the cost of a slave, 30 pieces of silver. Look there, it says that uh, the, the amount, the, the value of all of the things that were burned, in verse number 19 it says it was 50,000 pieces of silver. That was quite a book burning. That was quite a revival. They purified their home. Now, I just want to say this quickly here. Christian, there's no room for you to dabble in the occult. If you have Dungeons and Dragons at home, you need to get rid of it. If you have a Ouija board, you need to destroy it, get rid of it, throw it away. Uh, You don't need to study about the occult. You don't need to learn about the occult. You don't need to go visit a psychic. Amen? Amen? You may be going through a hard time in your, your life. You don't need to go have someone read your palm or look into a crystal ball. There's no room for that with a Christian. And here, these folks are fooling around with uh, the spiritism and mysticism and, uh, and, and Satan, and they got hurt in the process. There's no room for that. There's no room for that at all. The church was purified. Now, uh, how did the church grow? They got rid of their sinful influences. Many Christians know they are saved. Many Christians know they have been baptized. Many Christians know the facts about the Bible. Many Christians even have some behaviors in their lives that line up with Scripture. Don't miss this now. Many Christians are holding on to sinful habits and activities and influences. For you to continue to grow in Christ, to get off that plateau, you must be willing to give these things up. Maybe there are some music albums you need to burn or delete off your phone. Maybe there are some clothing items, magazines, books, friendships that you need to destroy. Maybe you don't need to literally get rid of things, but symbolically you need to get rid of things. I had a church member tell me, Today, that shortly after she got saved, that she went through her home room by room and she asked God, what in my house would you have me get rid of? What decorations need to go? What artifacts need to go? Jesus, if you lived here, what would you be uncomfortable with? What needs to go? Listen, I believe every Christian ought to go through their home and do the same thing. I remember as a boy, um, we had a man in our church who was just, um, you know, he was held in high esteem. He was looked up as one of the leaders of the church. And uh, he, he and his wife invited us over for, for dinner one night. And I went into his home for dinner. And I remember I walked up to his movie rack back when people had DVDs. DVDs sound so ancient now, don't they? They, they were such a big deal for a long time. Now they're just about uh, a relic. But I walked up to his uh, DVD rack. And I remember my mouth just gaping open at the wickedness on that DVD rack. You say, oh, you shouldn't have judged. I was a little boy. Cut me some slack. I don't need to walk into your house and look at your movie collection or look at your Netflix history. But you ought to do that for yourself. 
You see, for us to be a church that is growing in Christ, there are some things that need to go. There's some sin we need to let go of. Boy, I don't want there to have to be some horrible incident like what happened to the sons of Sceva for God to get our attention. The church was purified and the church continued to grow in Christ. Notice lastly, letter B, notice Paul's passion. Paul's passion. Look at verse 21 and 22. The Bible says, And these things were ended, after these things were ended, Paul purposed in his spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timotheus and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a season. Paul had given two years of his life to establishing this church to Ephesus. He had watched these people get saved, baptized, discipled, turn into missionaries, and then get right with God. His time in Ephesus was drawing to a close, and he had other mission fields in mind. We're going to look at, for the sake of time and the Lord's Supper, we're going to look at the rest of this chapter next time we're in the book of Acts. But I would just encourage you this evening, be passionate about the Lord, and let's get our hearts right with God, and let's make sure we're a people that please the Lord. Let's have our heads bowed nice clothes right where we are this evening. Will you take a minute where you are? Again, we're getting ready for the Lord's Supper, so it's appropriate to do this anyway. Will you take a minute where you are and search your own heart? Ask God to search your heart. Are there some dead weight type sin items in your home and in your lifestyle that are keeping you from being a Christian that's growing in Christ? You know, if God the Father and God the Son were to have a conversation in heaven about White Oak Baptist Church, I hope what would be said, what I desire for there to be said, is that that church is far from perfect, but that church is filled with people that are growing in Christ. Are you contributing to that conversation in heaven? In just a moment, we're going to have an invitation. I, I, I am staying generic on sin items and growth items on purpose because I want the Spirit of God to show you what needs to change. For some of you here this evening, you have all of the Christian disciplines down, but you've plateaued. And you're not growing in Christ anymore. You've grown at, at some point in your life, and you're even holding steady there. But when are you going to press on the upward way? When are you going to be like Caleb and say, I want that spiritual mountain. It belongs to me. Lord, I pray tonight that you'd help us. You'd work in our hearts. You would put your finger on areas, Lord, and you'd speak to us individually. Lord, those that come to church on Sunday night make up the core of White Oak Baptist Church. Lord, I'm thankful for them. Lord, if this crowd right here doesn't grow in you, then Lord, we have no hope as a church. Lord, other churches in this area need a church to show them the way. Lord, may we be the example. May we be that pattern church in this area. Lord, help us to confess sin. Help us to get right. Help us to be disciples that make disciples, help us to be a church that is growing in Christ.